This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come together to worship you through the study of your word. We know that you have revealed yourself to us in a specific way. You have chosen to reveal yourself through the written word that your eternal thoughts have been uh, put down in writing, and you have overseen the writing of Scripture through the prophets of the Old Testament and apostles in the New Testament so that what is recorded is preserved without error, given without error, that we may come to understand how you think, and that understanding how you think and how you have created the world, we can then live uh, consistently with that, and that is the definition of living in light of reality. And as we come to understand who you are and who we are, we come to understand our purpose in life, that we are not here to serve ourselves and our own desires But we are here in order to serve you, to glorify you, and to have an impact upon the world around us. And Father, we pray that as we study this morning that we might uh, be challenged by what the Apostle Paul states here in Colossians 4, and that it might have an impact on our day-to-day priorities. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. We're about three weeks away from the big priority day of the year. January 1st is a day everybody makes their New Year's resolutions, and January the 2nd is the day that everybody has already broken them. (laughs) But it's a good thing, I think, every now and then for us to stop and to reevaluate our priorities, uh, the way in which we rank the, uh, the important things in our life and how we spend our time in fulfilling those those details of our life and how we uh, how we uh, spend our time, how we apportion our time on a day to day basis, it's too often that we end up living our lives and running our daily schedule according to uh, immediate urgent needs. Some years ago, someone wrote a little track called "The Tyranny of the Urgent," and it was uh, focused on an important point, and that is that. As we look at how we spend our time too often, rather than uh, giving ourselves to that which we believe is important on a regular basis, we're too often reacting to circumstances and situations that arise at the last minute, and we are uh, we spend all of our time handling urgent demands rather than doing that which we know we should do on a regular basis. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christians, there are certain things we should be doing on a regular basis. We should be reading the scriptures every single day. We should read through a chapter, two chapters, three chapters. You should read through Proverbs. You should read through the Psalms on a regular basis. This is how God speaks to us today. This is the only way that God speaks to us today is through his word. And so if we are going to be reminded of God's word and be reminded of the various teachings or doctrines that are in the word, then we need to be reading the scripture on a daily basis. We need to be memorizing scripture and making it part of our life. This is what the psalmist said when he said, I, um, 
Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We need to make his word a part of our thinking, not just abstract doctrinal principles, but the word itself, memorizing scripture. And we need to pray on a regular basis. Prayer is a foundation for the Christian life. It's not something we do just in the morning or just in the evening, uh, but it is something that we should be doing continuously throughout the day. It is one of the highest priorities in Scripture. And yet so often uh, we find ourselves running through life today, spending too much time being distracted by... uh, too many different uh, tech, technical things, too, technological things, being distracted by uh, entertainment, being distracted by the demands of our uh, profession, our job, our occupation, and not spending time doing that which has eternal significant value. This is why the Apostle Paul comes to a conclusion in uh, the epistle to the Colossians by focusing on two things that he has already addressed earlier in the epistle, but as he comes to a close, he emphasizes two things that sort of summarize most of what he has already said in the in the epistle before he comes to some final greetings. So open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. The first command that he gives is to continue earnestly or to devote yourselves in prayer. And the second command is in verse 5, to walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. So two commands, prayer and a lifestyle that is founded on wisdom. And then we see the final uh, greetings from verse 7 down through verse 18. In verse 2, Paul says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant or watchful, alert is the idea, being vigilant, watchful in it, with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, or at the same time, praying also for us. So he's making a distinction between prayer in general and then the intercessory prayer of the believers in the church for the apostles themselves in their ministry, praying for also for us for the purpose of effective evangelism, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom, he then says, the second command. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. Notice his focal point in both of these has to do with the witness to those who are unbelievers. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So this this is his final instruction to the congregation in Colossae. It's wrapped around these two commands. First of all, to continue earnestly in prayer. This is a command that we find stated several times in Scripture. Prayer is a priority for any believer, and yet we find that there are uh, too many times when we just don't find time to pray. And I don't mean the kinds of bullet prayers that are often uh, characteristic of our lives where we're just dealing with issues on the fly, but time when we can sit and focus our attention, keeping a, some people like to keep a prayer journal, keeping a prayer list, keeping some sort of record of what we are praying for, who we are praying for, and then recording the answers to those prayers a time of Bible reading and reflection upon what God has said in those uh, passages that we're reading in Scripture, a time of communication, because prayer is, above all things, a communication with God. There are two ways in which um, this communication takes place. We pray either verbally or with our thoughts to God, and that is how we speak to God. 
But God doesn't speak back to us that way. God speaks to us only through his word in this dispensation. Now, I know that there are uh, many people today, and it's becoming more and more of a popular thing to uh, focus on some sort of internal communication from God. And sadly and unfortunately, there are too many pastors and too many Christians who have picked up very sloppy terminology, and they will say things like, well, God told me to do X or Y or whatever, or God spoke to me uh, when I did this or that or the other thing. And yet any kind of terminology that where we state something about God speaking to us that is apart from his word, we are in fact, even though we are not, uh, most people are not running around saying that what God spoke to them is should be in scripture, that is indeed the reality. If we claim that God has spoken to us, we are in fact claiming to be recipients of the same kind of revelation that God gave to the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament. Not all of the revelation that God gave to the writers of Scripture was inscripturated. There were many times in the Old Testament when God gave information to uh, some of the uh, key leaders in the Old Testament that wasn't uh, his purpose to have recorded for the ages. There were also revelation there was also revelation given to, uh, for example, Daniel related to the end times that, that God prohibited him from writing it down. So anytime we claim that God has spoken to us, we are claiming the same level of revelation that God gave to the prophets and to the apostles. And so that revelation would be subject to the same criteria that God established in the Old Testament. And in Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, God established certain criteria for evaluating claims that thus says the Lord. And if it was not consistent with what was already revealed in Scripture, or if it was prophetic and did not come true 100% of the time, then the penalty for that uh, false claim of divine revelation was to be death. Now, we live in a society today where the death penalty is considered to be some sort of uh, holdover, some sort of uh, uh, barbaric uh, ancient practice that has no place for modern men. Of course, as I've always pointed out, whenever we hear those kinds of claims, we need to recognize that in a, in a subtle sense, that is a blasphemy against God because God authorizes the death penalty. God mandated the death penalty in Genesis chapter uh, 9 in the Noahic covenant, and God made it a part of the same covenant where he said that men were to uh, eat the flesh of animals, that uh, he would, and also that he would not destroy the earth again uh, by by water. And the sign of that covenant was the rainbow. So that covenant is still in effect today, and it hasn't changed. Just because human beings may uh, wrongly utilize something doesn't mean it's wrong. Just because human human beings may uh, exercise injustice in something doesn't mean that what they are doing is wrong. It just means the way they are doing it is wrong. But the death penalty is very much a part of God's revelation. And under the Mosaic Law, what this shows is that to claim divine revelation when there was no divine revelation is as horrid a sin as committing homicide, committing murder. It is as horrid a sin as rape, and yet that is not something that we normally compare it to, but it is such an egregious violation of God's standard because it can mislead people away from the truth and consequently destroy an entire life because of false claims of divine revelation. So this is extremely serious. God has 
closed the canon of Scripture. We understand that from a number of different passages, and I've taught on this in the past, that with the death of the last apostle, the apostle John, the giving of divine revelation ceased. And the reason it ceased is because God had completed his revelation to us. And now we believe in the sufficiency of God's word so that we don't need to add to God's word. Now, if you want to read something insightful on mysticism, one of the papers that was given at the pre-trib conference a couple of weeks ago has now been posted up on the Dean Bible website on the left-hand corner. On the left-hand side, there's a link there for the pre-trib folder. And uh, Ken Harnock, who was... uh, uh, at Dallas Seminary, approximately the same time I was, there were about four Harnock brothers who went through seminary in the 70s. I always get them confused and can't remember which one was there because they were, they overlapped, and so there were two or three there when I was a student. But uh, Ken did a fabulous job of presenting the case against mysticism and its implications, and this runs through so many of the different apostasies that are present in the world today, which is what the theme of the conference was this last time. And many of the the major players and the ideas that that were exposed in his paper also show up in many of the other presentations uh, that occurred. And he emphasized this very point that prayer is not the same kind of communication between the believer and God. We speak to God verbally, we speak to him with our thoughts, and God speaks to us through his word. And God the Holy Spirit may bring back to our consciousness promises or principles uh, from God's word. Uh, He may uh, communicate in that manner, but there's nothing new given. God is not going to tell you, what, you, what your should decision, decision should be or what you should do tomorrow. He has already spoken to that and given you everything you need in order to address the issues of life in his word. So the issue now is do you trust his word or do you need God to do something else? And this is really the uh, foundation for all apostasies that we see down through history is that they reject the sufficiency of God's word and seek additional revelation in order to face the the issues of life. Well, Paul emphasizes prayer as foundational in the believer's life. He says, continue earnestly, as the New King James translates that. Others translate it, devote yourselves to prayer. It is the Greek verb proskartereo, used a number of different ways and uh, throughout the New Testament, but it has that idea of always being ready, always being prepared uh, for something. It's used in a everyday sense in two verses in Scripture. In Mark chapter 3, verse 9, Jesus told his disciples to keep a small boat ready for him because of the multitude. As the multitudes were pressing in upon him, he knew that there were times he had to get away from the crowd. He had to go off alone for prayer, for communication with God, for rest and relaxation, that this was important. And so he had told the disciples to keep a boat ready at all times. It was always available so that at any moment he could get in that boat and get away from the pressing crowds. In Acts chapter 10, verse 7, in another scenario, one we studied not too long ago in our Tuesday night Bible class on the book of Acts, when the Apostle Peter was uh, directed by God. Remember, this was still a time when God spoke directly to the Apostles during that period in which uh, the canon was still being revealed. God had uh, directed Peter through a vision to go to this the household of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a Gentile in uh, the, the town of the city of Caesarea Maritima or Caesarea by the Sea and that there Peter would give them the gospel. This was the major event that occurs in Acts where the gospel for the first time truly went to the Gentiles, and and the Gentiles were brought in as equal members of the body of Christ with Jewish background believers. So in Acts 10, verse 7, in reference 
to this, there was also a revelation given to Cornelius to send some messengers down to Joppa, which is uh, sort of a suburb now of modern Tel Aviv, right on the coast, where Peter was staying with Simon the Tanner, and that these messengers would bring Peter back to Caesarea by the sea, a town about 45 miles north of Joppa. And we read in that verse, when the angel who spoke to him that <coughs> had departed, uh, that is the revelation given to Cornelius, Cornelius called two of his household servants, so these would have been his civilian servants. He was, uh, pro- he, as a centurion, he had uh, he was a non-commissioned officer, and he would have uh, been roughly the rank of a of a first sergeant today, something of that order. Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier. So this would have been part of his entourage in his home. This was another soldier who was a uh, who was a God-fearer like Cornelius. At this point, neither are believers in an, either an Old Testament sense or a New Testament sense. Uh, this does not happen until Acts 11 when they hear the gospel, but they are seeking truth, and so they're referred to as God-fearers. There were different categories of, uh, of Gentile who, who followed uh, Judaism in the first century. There were those who were proselytes uh, of the gate. That is, they weren't full proselytes. And there were God-fearers, and they followed the law to a certain degree, and they worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they were not uh, fully uh, implementing the law in their own lives. Cornelius was one of those. So he takes us to servants and a soldier who believes similar to him, from among those who waited on him continually. So he's got this group of soldiers and servants who are constantly available to take care of various needs, responsibilities that he has at a moment's notice. So the one thing we see in common between Mark 3 and Acts 10 is someone who is constantly ready, something that's constantly ready, constantly available, uh, so that at a moment's notice it's ready to be utilized. This word is applied to prayer in several passages. In Acts 2.42, there is a description of that first group of believers in the early church after they had responded to Peter's uh, gospel presentation and uh, sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost at the temple. There were some 3,000 who responded in belief, and we're told about them that they continued steadfastly. So that's the idea. There's It's perseverance. It is uh, continued uh, readiness, and it describes consistent action. So they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. And I always make the point on this verse that though it looks like four things there in the English, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers, the way it's structured in the in the Greek is there's only two things, doctrine and fellowship. Fellowship is with God, and so that fellowship with God is further defined in the next phrase, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. Breaking of bread is the communion service, which focuses on fellowship. That's just why it's called communion, our fellowship with God, and prayer. Prayer is part of our fellowship with God. So the fellowship here is not fellowship with other Christians. It is fellowship with God, and that fellowship with God is built on an accurate understanding of what the apostles taught. So they continued consistently. They persevered in the teaching of the apostles and in fellowship with God, which included prayer. In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, as the apostles recognized there needed to be some administrative changes in the way they handled things because uh, some of the Greek Jewish or Hellenized uh, Jewish widows who had become believers were being overlooked in the distribution of financial aid. The um, apostles recognized they couldn't do it all, so they uh, selected uh, a group of men to d- help distribute that financial aid so that the apostles could in turn focus on their priority, which was prayer and the ministry of the word. So that is the same idea here. We, the apostles, will give ourselves continually, 
consistently will persevere in prayer and the ministry of the word. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul is sort of summarizing various things in the Christian life. He says, we are rejoicing in hope, patient or enduring in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. This is a priority in uh, the Christian life. So we are commanded to continue earnestly in prayer, but then there's further information given. We are to be vigilant. The New King James translates this. We are to be vigilant. This is the Greek verb, uh, gregoreo. We get our English name Gregory from this verb, and it means to be alert, to be awake, to be watchful. It is a participial form here, and it's describing the manner or the means by which we stay, uh, by which we continue earnestly in prayer. Um, Paul often uses this term, and the Scripture often uses this term with the sense of a uh, of being watchful in light of the presence of an enemy or someone who is about to uh, uh, attack us. It's often used in light of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are to be watchful. And so not every, every uh, context has that in its, in its presence, but there's always that hint there that we need to be ready. We need to be watchful. There is a time coming when the Lord's going to come back and we're going to be absent from the body face to face with the Lord, either in death or at the rapture, and at which time there will be a judgment uh, to follow the judgment seat of Christ for believers, and there will be an evaluation. So everything that we do in life needs to be thought of in terms of our preparation for the judgment seat of Christ. So we have passages that emphasize this watchfulness and preparation, uh, being alert against an enemy, such as in the passages, uh, passage uh, related to the second coming in Matthew 24, uh, 42 and 43, the Olivet Discourse. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. So it's the idea of alertness and preparation in light of the future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and then Matthew 25:13 is a similar use. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, the idea of watching in terms of the presence of a hostile force or enemy is seen in Matthew 14:34 through 37. This is uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and he is expecting the Roman soldiers to come to arrest him, and he wants to make sure that that really that when he is arrested that it is done in an appropriate manner, that he was not to be uh, taken captive or killed on that spot. This is why he told uh, the disciples to take swords with them. They went armed so that they could protect him, and they... Um, so they're waiting there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus took uh, Peter and John with him off to the side while he prayed, and they were to watch. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Then he came, and then after a few minutes, he came back, and they had fallen asleep. They weren't very watchful. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Focal point here is on that word watch. Be on the alert for the enemy. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Watch and stand fast in the faith. Be brave and be strong. Always be alert because there is an enemy out there, as seen in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, that is, be watchful, be alert. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, uh, seeking whom he may devour. We are engaged in an ever-ongoing battle with the enemy, with in spiritual warfare against Satan, and we need to constantly be on the alert and be prepared uh, for uh, for anything. And that 
one way in which we do that is through is through prayer. So in verse 2, Paul says, continue earnestly or devote yourselves in prayer by being vigilant, by being watchful in it, then with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is often seen as a vital component in prayer. When I teach on prayer, I try to emphasize uh, four areas that should be present in most prayer. Now, it's not going to be there all the time, but these are the major categories of prayer, and it's based on the acronym of CATS, C-A-T-S. First of all, there's confession. We need to make sure that we are in fellowship with God. In Psalm 66:18, the psalmist said, If I behold iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now, that's an important verse to understand because there are many people today who think that somehow you are just being uh, an, a, a extremely, um, extremely rigid and uh, very much of an exclusivist if you say that God doesn't listen to some people's prayer. But the Scripture is very clear that God doesn't listen to everyone's prayer. He doesn't even listen to every. Christian's prayer. He doesn't listen to every believer's prayer. If we regard iniquity in our heart, Psalm 66, 18 says, the Lord will not hear. If there is sin in our life, we are out of fellowship. We are walking according to the sin nature, and there has to be a cleansing of sin before our prayers can gain a hearing. So we are to confess our sin. First John 1, 9 if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, that is what we just uh, admitted, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's all those sins we don't remember we committed, all the sins we didn't know were sins that we committed. The slate is wiped clean. We are cleansed and restored to fellowship so that we can then uh, go forward in our, in our Christian life. So prayer must include confession to make sure that we are in fellowship. Second, the A in cats is for adoration. That is worship. We, As you read through the psalms, see how many times the psalmist focuses on simply praising God, rehearsing his attributes. As we rehearse God's attributes, it's a reminder to us of all that God can do for us and all that he has promise for us. It focuses our attention upon him, and it gets our attention off of our problem and who we are. One of the things that you should do sometime when you're reading through the Psalms is mark out the Psalms where the psalmist is in some sort of uh, horrible situation. He's being abused. He's being slandered. He's being vilified. He's being attacked. Uh, Whatever the circumstances may be, the psalmist is in trouble. And so he is going to God for aid. And as he does that, he starts off expressing his circumstances and his situation as he is bemoaning the the horrible uh, circumstances that he's in. Then he begins to focus on God's character. Uh, the technical term for this kind of a song, it, psalm is an, a lament psalm. And as he shifts his focus away from his problems, to the character of God, suddenly you see the tone shift in the Psalms. As he focuses more upon God, his problems begin to minimize. His problems begin to get smaller and smaller, and as he realizes that God is greater than any and all of his problems. And as you read through a Psalm like that, after he focuses on God, he then begins to declare his thankfulness to God, for delivering him from this particular problem, even though that hasn't happened yet. But he realizes that because God is who he is, that the certainty of his provision is so great that even though it hasn't happened yet, it is spoken of as if it has already come to pass. And so the gratitude is based on an understanding of God's grace and his provision uh, for us. And so gratitude is frequently associated with prayer. We are vigilant in it, that is, in the prayer with thanksgiving. We see this in passages in the New Testament, such as Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, what? With thanksgiving. 
gratitude for even the circumstances that we're in that aren't pleasant, that aren't what we would have desired. Uh, Thanksgiving always associated with our prayer. We are to let our requests be made known to God. So we pray with thanksgiving. First Timothy 2.1, in addressing corporate prayer and prayer within the congregation, the household of God, uh, Paul writes, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So these terms, supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks, are different uh, elements, different approaches to prayer. So we have confession, we have adoration, we have thanksgiving. That's the T in the acronym. And then S is supplications. Supplications can be further subdivided into uh, intercessory prayer for others and petitions for oneself. So C-A-T-S covers the categories of prayers, and these are different types as listed in 1 Timothy uh, 2.1. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, we read, Pray without ceasing. And the Greek word here is not the one we find in uh, Colossians 4.2. It's a different word, adioleptos, which means something that is continuous, not without a break, but like when you have a hacking cough, something that just goes on and on and on, so that our life should always be focused on being ready to pray to God, ready to have that ongoing communication with God. So we are to pray without ceasing. And then Paul said, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So the command is to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant with thanksgiving or being watchful with thanksgiving. And then at the same time, so he moves from the broader command to be vigilant in prayer, to a more narrow type of prayer, which was intercessory prayer for the apostle himself and for his ministry. He says, meanwhile, praying also for us, that includes Paul and his associates. The apostle Paul had several men with him. We'll see some of them listed a little later in the chapter. And because the apostle Paul understood that part of the role that he had And it's also part of the responsibility of every pastor is to be training men who can teach the Word of God for the next generation. And it is critical for anybody who uh, is a pastor and who is focused on uh, promoting the teaching of God's Word to be involved in the training of future generations of, of pastors. So... Uh, the Apostle Paul is involved in that, and these traveled with him frequently. He says, meaning, meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the Word. This is the idea of giving them opportunity in order to teach the Word and to proclaim the gospel. An open door is a typical metaphor of the ancient world. We use it the same way today, emphasizing opportunity and uh, ready access to pro- uh, proclaiming the message so that we should pray for an open door. So when we pray, we should pray for West Houston Bible Church, for all the believers here, that we all might have opportunities to Uh, explain the gospel to people around us and that we might have the courage and the insight and the wisdom uh, to do that in a gracious manner. That's what comes up in the next couple of verses. We should pray for our for the pastor. We should pray for others who are involved in the leadership of the church. We should pray for missionaries that we support that they might have uh, ready access and opportunity to preach the word, proclaim the word, teach the word, and to explain the gospel. That's what he focuses on here is the content, that they would have an open door to speak the mystery of Christ. Now, this isn't some sort of of mystery doctrine related to the mystery religions, but it has to do with previously unrevealed truth related to Jesus Christ. And this previously unrevealed truth was truth that was was uh, present in, uh, that was not revealed clearly in the Old Testament, but was revealed through the epistles of the New Testament, specifically a clear understanding of the gospel. Uh, 
And it's amazing how many people don't really understand the gospel and can't articulate it. I've seen this for years as a pastor, people who have sat out in the congregation and have heard the gospel again and again and again, and then, for example, they want to join the church, and you ask them a simple question like, would you explain why you should go to heaven when you die? And they never heard that approach, perhaps, and they start stammering and stuttering, and they're not really very clear. Uh, and it's and it's not that they're not saved, it's just that they've never really learned how to art- articulate the gospel. And so we need to understand how to do that. It's very simple. Just believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. This is the gospel content, that all you have to do is trust in Christ. So what Paul is praying for here is that uh, they have an open door, an opportunity to speak the mystery of Christ, to proclaim the gospel, and it is for this, the gospel, that he says, I'm also in chains. Now, this is his first imprisonment in Rome when he wrote this. Colossians and Ephesians were part of the uh, four uh, so-called prison epistles, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon. Uh, these were part of those, uh, and Philippians were part of those uh, prison epistles. And he really was just under house arrest. He uses the term here in chains in sort of a metaphorical sense. There are some who think that he was chained to a Roman soldier uh, within his house arrest, but he had a certain degree of, of freedom. I, I don't think that's, it, it's very hard to prove whether he was literally in chains or not in that sense, but they gave him, he had tremendous freedom of movement at this time, well, just being under under house arrest in, in Rome. So this should probably, probably be understood uh, <clears throat> metaphorically. That he is there because of the gospel. And he, it took him a couple of years to get to Rome because he had gone to Jerusalem. There he had proclaimed the gospel. It created a riot there in Jerusalem. He was arrested by the Roman soldiers for his own protection. Then he was uh, held uh, in, in uh, jail in Caesarea by the sea until he appealed to Rome, and then by the time he had a chance to catch a, get on a ship and go to Rome, a couple of years had gone by, and then he was in Rome for a couple of years before his case was finally dismissed. That is when he traveled probably to Spain, maybe to some other areas, back to northern Italy and Greece, and then he was arrested again, and that was his last time when he was martyred. But he is talking about that first time and uh, that he would have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, which is why he was in prison. And the prayer should be ultimately, verse 4, that I may make it manifest, that is the gospel, make it clear as I ought to speak. And then he came to his uh, last command, the second command, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside redeeming the time. The command is to walk in wisdom. Wisdom is a major theme in Colossians. Wisdom has to do not with the abstract wisdom of Greek thought, but more the Hebrew idea of skillful application of the word, skillful living so that your life counts for the plan of God. So he says walk, which is a metaphor for conducting your life, live your life on the basis of wisdom to those outside, that is to unbelievers. We live our life in the midst of a community of unbelievers, whether they are our neighbors or our family or our co-workers or other students. If you're in school, this is our environment. We are to walk in wisdom uh, that way uh, so that we can... Uh, reflect the gospel. Now, it takes a little bit of maturity to have that wisdom. I'll give you a negative example. Uh, one of the things that I often stress with, uh, with folks is that if you're involved in any kind of evangelism, if you have good friends who are in the Jewish community and you're involved in evangelism, then you need to be sensitive to some things there, one of which is to just build a relationship, a friendship with them, and as time goes by and you have credibility in their life, opportunities will eventually come uh, at their initiative for you to communicate the gospel. And this applies in other ways to almost everybody who's an unbeliever. Be a friend. Don't just look at them as a target of opportunity. 
And too often what happens is Christians look at unbelievers as targets of opportunity, and rather than having a relationship within which you can communicate the gospel, they get engaged in what I call drive-by evangelism, and they just see this target of opportunity and start shooting them with their gospel gun. And often you create more problems than solutions. And I've seen this happen uh, over time, and, 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 and I have read within the Jewish community, there are many Jews that think that they're just a target of opportunity as far as Christians are concerned, and that they have sort of a, a, a target on their back that says, give me the gospel. And, and there's no relationship there. There's, there's no friendship. And just they're your friend. You like them. You have a relationship with them. And it's not based on simply the fact that you want to uh, communicate the gospel to them. So we have to have wisdom. But Paul says that this wisdom is, there's a time factor here. And we have, the, the time can easily be wasted, so we need to redeem the time. This was an idiom for using the time wisely and effectively in terms of our life. Don't waste your time on that which has no eternal value or no eternal significance. And then he says in verse, uh, verse 6, using another idiom, let your speech always be with uh, with grace. Literally, it is. Uh, it means to be with salt. And it was an idiom, and it's not emphasizing grace as much as I think it's another term that was often used for a synonym for speaking and talking uh, wisely. So let your speech always be wise. Be careful what you say. Think about what you say, how you approach uh, various issues, and uh, communicate this to the unbelievers, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. There's, there are general principles in giving the gospel to people. They need to understand that they're a sinner. You don't want to overload the fact that they're a sinner by making it sound like whatever they've done is so horrible and bad that uh, they're worse than anybody else. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we have to understand that we're all in need of salvation. We all need to hear the gospel because we're under condemnation, John chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, We're all under condemnation, but the one who believes in Christ is no longer condemned. So we need need to express the fact that uh, there's a condemnation, there's spiritual death, there's an eternal penalty for sin, but then focus upon the gospel and explain that. But how we do that is going to differ from person to person. Some people have never heard the gospel, and all you're doing is planting a seed. Some people have heard the gospel three, four, five times, and uh, they just need clarification. Other people may have heard the gospel 20 or 30 times. I have friends that are unbelievers who've heard the gospel so many times that they can, they can witness as well as I can, but they don't believe it. But they've heard it so many times, they, they understand the gospel. And for people like that, we need to have wisdom to address the issue in a, in a different way. Every person is different. Don't just look at them as another opportunity to carve a notch on your gospel gun and you witness to another person. Build those relationships and pray about how, how the best way is for you to communicate the gospel and make it clear to that particular uh, particular individual. Now, as we get into the last and final section here in Colossians, Paul is talking about, Paul is giving final, uh, final greetings to some of his, from some of his associates to the people in Colossae. As I pointed out when we began this study, that Paul had never been to Colossae. But his, some of his associates had, and so there were clearly some connections. Paul had spent uh, two years in, in uh, Ephesus with a school where he trained pastors and evangelists who went out, some of whom established this congregation in Colossae, which was about, uh, which was about 50 or 60 miles to the east of Ephesus. And one of these is first mentioned as uh, Tychicus in verse 7. He says, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant of the Lord, will tell you all of the news about me. He was sending this epistle to uh, 
to Colossae in the hands of Tychicus, who was a faithful uh, servant with him. There are eight people who are mentioned in this in this section. The first is Tychicus, who served as a messenger. Tychicus was uh, uh, became a believer in uh, Thessalonica. This is the first time that, uh, excuse me, Tychicus, excuse me, was a uh, just another uh, servant who worked with him, who traveled with him. Uh, many times I was confusing him with Aristarchus, uh, mentioned a little later. Tychicus was a, called a beloved brother, a faithful or dependable servant, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Of the ways in which Paul talked about his associates, these three statements, that he's a beloved brother, he's faithful, or which emphasizes his dependability. Paul could count on him uh, no matter what. And Tychicus traveled with him and stayed with him even though he was in prison in Rome. And he calls him a fellow servant in the Lord. This was the highest of praise for anyone associated with the Apostle Paul. He says that he's um, sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. How? By communicating the word of God to them. And then Tychicus would return to Paul with news of their condition. Second person he mentions is in verse 9 with Onesimus. Onesimus was a former slave, and he was the one about whom the epistle to Philemon was written. Onesimus was an escaped slave who had found his way to Rome, and in Rome he heard the gospel from the apostle Paul and became a believer. But he had violated the law by running away, and so Paul was sending him back to his master Philemon, and in that epistle he's requesting of Philemon that he graciously forgive Onesimus and Paul asked that he would release Onesimus from his bondage. Uh, Paul does not take the opportunity to go off on a rant against slavery at, at all. He just says, deal with Onesimus in grace. Onesimus he calls a faithful and beloved brother. Notice he doesn't refer to him as a fellow slave. That would have been a confusing term in light of Onesimus's, uh circumstances and situation. Then in verse 10, he mentions Aristarchus. Aristarchus was a from uh, Thessalonica. He had come to understand the gospel there, as indicated uh, uh, in, in Acts. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 29 and 20, verse 4, we see that he traveled with Paul. He traveled with Paul to Jerusalem, was with Paul in Jerusalem, and stayed with him even during his time of imprisonment in, in Caesarea and traveled to Rome with him. And we don't know whether it was voluntary or involuntary, uh, but he is called a fellow prisoner with Paul. And so he stuck with Paul, and he was often involved with, uh, with Paul's Bible classes and studies and always there to help Paul with whatever he needed help with. The next person mentioned is Mark. This is uh, John Mark, mentioned in the book of Acts. He's a cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas was instrumental in Paul's life in bringing Paul back to the church in Antioch, something we'll be studying this coming Tuesday night, from which Paul and Barnabas were first commissioned to go out on the first missionary journey. John Mark was a very young man at that time. He really couldn't hang in there with Paul. By the end of the journey, Paul didn't want to have anything more to do with, with uh, John Mark. He was a quitter. And so when they went on their second missionary journey or were, were preparing for it, Barnabas wanted to take Mark along, and Paul said, no, I'm not traveling with him anymore. And so that caused a split between Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul went off with Silas for his second missionary journey, but eventually John Mark grew up, and there was a reconciliation between him and uh, the Apostle Paul, and Mark was often seen as an associate of Paul's and someone who helped him out. So he says he's there with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you've received some instructions. And if he comes to you, he's not sure, but if Mark comes to them, then they are to welcome him. And then there's another individual, the fifth one mentioned. He's called Jesus, which was a common name in the Greek. It's based on the Aramaic or Hebrew Joshua. And this was a common name. It wasn't something restricted to Jesus, but he was usually referred to by his surname, 
which is justice, or in the Latin it would be justus, which was a translation of the Aramaic or Hebrew for righteousness. And so in the Hebrew, his last name would have been related to the noun tzedek for righteousness, or we see it today in the, in the Jewish name Zadok, like the jewelers here in Houston. Uh, so his name in Hebrew would have been Joshua Zadok, and yet because of the similarity of his first name with Jesus' name, he usually was referred to by his, uh, by his uh, last name. Jesus, uh, who's called Justice, these are, only, these are his only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are the circumcision. So these are all Jewish. The remaining ones who are mentioned, Epaphras in verse 12, was a Gentile. Uh, who was the pastor of the group in Colossae, who had brought news to Paul in Rome uh, from them. He was mentioned earlier in the epistle as a faithful communicator of the word. Here he's referred to as a bondservant of Christ who greets you, and that Paul says he's always laboring fervently for you in prayer. So again, that emphasis on prayer, uh, intercessory prayer for the church in Colossae. And the purpose for that prayer is that you may stand perfect, that is mature and complete in all the will of God. This has been the thrust of this epistle, uh, training and teaching the Colossian believers on how they can uh, reach spiritual maturity, which is the goal of all pastoral ministry. This is what Paul had prayed for back in verse, uh, back in verse 9. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this is the focal point of prayer, and we should be praying similarly for those around us. Verse 13, Paul says, For I bear him witness, that is Epaphras, that he has a great zeal for you. Notice how personal Paul is here. This is an abstract doctrine. It just shows how, how much he cares for the recipients of the letter, how, he, how much he prays for them on a regular uh, basis and that they might grow to spiritual maturity. He says, uh, I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you and for those who are in Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was not far from Colossae. These three cities, Heropolis and Laodicea, are all within six or seven miles of each other in a little triangle about 50 miles to the east of Ephesus. Then he is also associated with Luke, who is a physician. This is the writer of the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And Demas, another associate we know very little about, but who was mentioned a few times by the Apostle Paul. And then in verse 15, he says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. So he knows that there's communication between these two churches. They're not just living in isolation of each other. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. So this refers to another church that meets in the home of uh, Nymphus, and was just a house church. And then he concludes in verse 16 by saying, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans. So this was designed to be a, an epistle that was a, what they called a, 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 a cyclical epistle that was to be read among various uh, churches, not just the one to whom it was initially addressed. And then he said, and say to Archippus, this is one of the uh, one of the other leaders in their church, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may be may fulfill it. So apparently Archippus was on the verge of quitting, and he's being encouraged to hang in there and fulfill the role that God had called him to. And then Paul writes as he finishes this salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. That is that he's in prison for the gospel. Grace be with you. Amen. So this is the epistle of the Colossians. The focus point, focal point for us has been on the sufficiency of Christ and all that we have in him. And once we come to understand that, then we are challenged to go on and apply all of these principles in our life so that we may uh, fully glorify God. Next week, we'll have a message related to Christmas on Sunday morning, and then following that, the next week, we'll begin a new series on Sunday morning on the book of Proverbs with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things. 
to be reminded of the priorities of prayer and living our life on the basis of wisdom, especially in light of those in unbelief, those who are outside the household of God, those who are outside the body of Christ who need to hear the truth of the gospel, and that we need to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He paid the penalty for your sin. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all born under condemnation. And yet Jesus Christ, in a demonstration of your love, died on the cross to pay that penalty for us. And he could do that because he's the eternal second person of the Trinity. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied today. And that if there's anyone here that's, that's never trusted in Christ, that right now they would take that opportunity to put their faith in him, to believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. In Christ's name, amen.